And welcome to you. Good morning. Good morning. I'm hopeful that you had a wonderful holiday week and weekend. And it's a privilege to be able to spend some time sharing in God's Word with you this morning as we begin a new series in James. It was one of the most recognized opening sequences of 1950s television programming. These nine ominous notes were followed by, ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. And I don't know if a few of you uh, recognize or have watched an episode or two, but if you aren't familiar uh, with this classic TV series, it was a show called Dragnet. And it was set in Los Angeles, California, starring Jack Webb as Detective Joe Friday. Personally, I haven't seen an episode in over 35 years. Check my note on that. That doesn't sound right, but it is. Over 35 years. And so I'd hesitate to make a recommendation as to whether it truly is must-see TV or not. But over the course of this past week, in preparation for an introduction to the letter of James, I was struck by my recall of one of Joe Friday's most famous lines. See, as he would question individuals, and they would tend to go off on these pointless tangents, and they'd start, um, uh, they'd start trying to uh, justify their shady behavior, or maybe make excuses for why their alibis weren't matching those of the eyewitness accounts. Well, Joe Friday would simply look at them and say, just the facts, ma'am. All we want are the facts. And so, what was this connection? Joe Friday and the book of James? Well, let me tell you. One thing I've discovered is that the book of James is a handbook of how to live out practical faith. It's the rubber meets the road between what I say and what I do. And through this, James will provide us with all of these various life scenarios and situations. And the beauty of that is that in each of these situations, they're the ones that you and I are most prone to go off on pointless spiritual tangents, start justifying our shady, unchristlike behavior, and even make excuses for why our professions of faith aren't matching the eyewitness accounts of our actions. So in that way, uh, you know, James is the New Testament Joe Friday. And his letter, the subject of this new series, we're going to find just cuts to the chase, right? It reminds us, short and sweet, actions speak louder than words. And if we are truly going to talk the talk, then we had better walk the walk. And as you might imagine, with that buildup, it results in a highly challenging letter. It results in a letter that is occasionally harsh and mostly straightforward, It provides us with commands and imperatives and very few suggestions. But here's the real mystery of the letter of James. See, for as direct and to the point as the epistle of James truly is, those of us, perhaps some of you who are familiar with this book in the least little bit, will often say it's one of your favorite books of the Bible. I've heard that all week. And that's really interesting to me. In fact, it's counterintuitive. One of the most challenging books of the entire Bible 
is, is also the most popular, one of the most populars. And so obviously there must be something really special that James does with these words and that he shares with us. Something really special about the words themselves. Words that encourage us even as they convict us. Words that engage our desire for application even as they engage our desire for biblical truth. And something we will prayerfully experience over the coming weeks through a series that we've titled, True Faith Is. And this morning, we're going to start by familiarizing ourselves through an, an introduction to the author, to the audience, and to the aim of this epistle. And by nature, an introductory sermon is going to cover a little bit of background, and so we're going to talk through that a little bit. But please don't miss, with each of these background points, there is certainly a significant amount of application for us to take away this morning. And so with that, let's, let's begin. The author of James. We read in chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's pretty straightforward. As was custom of first century letter writing, the greeting identifies who wrote the letter and also identifies some level of credibility or authority for, for writing it. Except in this case, even more critical than any of the other books, while it's always a good practice uh, to begin by, by understanding the author's context better, in this case, we definitely need more. We need to know a little bit more about James in order to truly uh, find the richness and the insight in everything else he's going to tell us. Because Scripture, as we know, is totally, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet God allowed the authors to color it with their perspectives and their unique experiences themselves. And so, at a minimum, we need to know more about James. We need to know the context. And the most fundamental question to begin this investigation is, which James is James? Which James is James? We say that because there's five James that are mentioned in the New Testament. We find in Luke's gospel, the first James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot. So this was pretty much a James that was used to differentiate the second Judas of the disciples from the first one, the infamous one, the traitor. And so I almost see this in a way that uh, the second Judas went up to Luke and said, come on, man, you've got to put my dad in there so they don't confuse me with Iscariot. And so that's what we see. That's the last that's ever mentioned in this James, so we can kind of check him off the list. The second James is used in the same similar case. James the less, we have uh, two Marys at least that show up at the empty tomb after the resurrection of Christ. And this James is used to identify the Mary that is not the Mary mother of Jesus. Again, this is the last we hear of him, no other mention, so we can scratch him off the list. Now next, we have a disciple, James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, he's a disciple, but he's likely about the less prominent disciple in all of Scripture. In fact, after Pentecost, there's no more biblical record, and there are no more early church records that speak of James, the son of Alphaeus. So we're pretty certain that's not the James that's the author of our letter. The next two are highly potential, likely candidates. The first one is James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John. Now, this is a very highly prominent disciple. Uh, in fact, James is seen often with Jesus, and John, and Peter in very key ministry moments. Uh, he was... Um, 
instrumental to much of Jesus's uh, ministry himself. And so it's a very likely candidate, except for one really important detail. In Acts 12, 2, we are told that James, the son of Zebedee, was the first disciple to be martyred by Herod. And that occurred in A.D. 44. Now, the dating for the letter of James at the very earliest, because of external and internal evidence, is A.D. 45, likely 46, 47, or 48. So we are definitely certain that this James was not writing a letter at that time. Uh, in fact, this is just a by the way, uh, most think very highly likely that this was the first biblical book of the New Testament written. This was the first manuscript out of all of the other apostles, the work of Paul or the Gospels themselves. So it's, it's pretty interesting to think about that letter in that way. But that leaves us with one James for which there is no, no real objection at all from theologians, church historians, early church century, early century tradition, or scriptural evidence. And that is that James, the younger brother of Jesus, is the author. This is the author of James. You're going to see from time to time that we go back and forth between half-brother of Jesus and brother of Jesus. And that's really a theological addition that's been added later in church history. Uh, since Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, Joseph was not the biological father. Uh, and he was the biological father of James. So that's a half-brother relationship. But for all purposes, Scripture speaks of them as brothers as well and family. So that's why you might see that differently. And so we see that, and we, and, and we say, well, yeah, no kidding. That makes sense. The brother of Jesus, he's got a lot of good stuff. He, he had a front row to history. The Son of God was in his house. He grew up with him. He learned all sorts of good stuff from him. Not so fast. And it's what we learn next about James, our author, that truly starts to bring it home for us for both the application and what we're going to see the rest of this letter. It's the perspective we're going to look at from James for the rest of this letter. And so let's see what really might surprise us about the brother of Jesus. Beginning in Mark 3, or Mark 6, verse 3, uh, we read that Jesus is teaching in his hometown. And when he's teaching, the people start to complain, the townspeople. And they say, isn't that Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He was amazed at their lack of faith. In other words, hey, that's that carpenter family. They're, they're a good family. The oldest son, an embarrassment to him. Even his siblings think so. Well, Mark will then go on to make sure we realize that it's not just the townspeople speaking for the family. He'll say that when his family heard about this, further teaching, they went out to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. I mean, that's what a scene, right? Our brother is crazy. Let's go stop him. Our name is at stake. We have to stop him and, 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 and control him. And so we're starting to see a picture of who James really is and what his testimony is. And if there's any doubt at all, in the event we're still trying to say, well, maybe James was that one last one who held out and he really believed that Jesus was who he said he was, the Apostle John just sort of shoots that down. And he tells us that for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Even his own brothers. And that, when I see this come together, for me, that's one of those 
wait, what? Kind of moments. Right? Jesus has, it, has four brothers, at least two sisters, and not one of them had placed their faith in him. The Son of God, right there in their home, likely 30 years, and they didn't believe he was who he said he was. And I think this starts to make sense too, sort of a side note, but from the cross, what we, what we see and we read is that Jesus looks down and rather than say, James, Judas, Simon, Joseph, take care of mom, he points to the apostle John and he says, this is your mother, this is your son. In other words, by blood relation, uh, I really, my brothers aren't as, as near to me and, and are not the ones that need to be taken care of, mom, because my spiritual brothers are now stronger and do that. So, so sort of a broken family relationship there between brother and Jesus. It's got to make us wonder at this point, how in the world did James go from denying his brother to biblical author? He'd spent his entire life, it seems, skeptical right? Brothers claims. How did he become and when did he become a no-nonsense defender of the faith, a just-the-facts kind of guy? Well, the answer, I think fittingly, comes from the other well-known skeptic-turned-apologist, the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us that it was when the resurrected Christ appeared to him. That'll do it. That'll do it, huh? The doubting brother confronted by the risen Lord was totally transformed. No longer ashamed or skeptical, James was all in. And in fact, as evidence of his sincerity and his understanding of his new faith, we even see in the way that he introduced himself, he doesn't play the nepotism card. He doesn't say, hey guys, this is James, remember, brother of Jesus. He says, hey, this is James, the servant of the Lord Jesus. He got it. He was totally changed. A face-to-face with the risen Christ changed everything. And it still does today. It does every day, actually. From that moment on, over the next period of time, many years, 5, 10, 15 years, we see that, that James now moves forward by praying with the apostles, discipleship, co-laboring with the apostle Paul, evangelism, Leader of the Jerusalem Council in Acts, we're told that he's actually a key figure in making a decision about the Gentiles and Jews being one in their faith. Um, pillar of the church, Paul says. Doubting brother to pillar of the early church. James was dead in his denial and he became alive in his belief. And as that relates to those of us here this morning, I think this is when the question of which James is James now more importantly becomes, which James are you? Which James am I? The skeptical, unbelieving, dead in denial James? That's great news. It takes one genuine encounter with the risen Lord to be totally transformed. To go, totally go from skeptic to praying and co-laboring and, 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 and serving God's kingdom. And that's also good news for many of us who spend time praying for friendships, family members, perhaps in our own home, who continue to resist the gospel. One encounter, continue to pray, continue to be the Jesus that they know and they see, 
one encounter with the risen Lord. And then lastly, I would suppose, and um, I don't think I'm too far off on this, but we're here on a Sunday morning, a lot of regulars. Uh, doesn't always mean everything, but I, I look out, and I, I would suppose that many of you have become the changed James, the post-risen Lord James, alive in your belief, James, recognizing Jesus as Lord James. That's great news, because in that, whether it was yesterday or many years ago, the privilege of co-laboring in the kingdom, growing in discipleship, serving God and serving others in increasing measure awaits us and is expected by us. That's great news. So are, where, where are we this morning in James? And, and better yet, as we move forward, this perspective, I would encourage us in this study that we, we do so through the lens of a doubting brother turned passionate follower. That's James, of our, our author. He's the author who is he writing to? Who is the audience for the letter of James? The, the letters of the Bible are always written to someone and for someone. Okay, they were very specific. They were written to original audiences in the first century, and they're written for all who would come after. And so that, too, is something we need to understand. We continue in verse 1 as part of the greeting, and he says it's to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Well... We know by the use of the 12 tribes that James is indicating that he's writing to Jews. Jews who had at one time worshipped in Jerusalem, the spiritual hub, the early church hub. They had grown in numbers. They had practiced close fellowship. They were discipled under the teaching of the church, eventually under James. It was their spiritual home. But beginning with the stoning of Stephen that we see in Acts as well, we read that a great persecution took place against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That happened not long after the resurrection of Christ. And for the next decade, this, uh, this uh, scattering expanded as the persecution increased. So many completely left Judea and Samaria. They left Palestine and they went south into Egypt and they went west into Turkey and Greece and Rome. Many were taken as slaves into Rome. Many went east into Babylon, Iraq, Iran. And you can see by the, the indication on this map that those were some of the early mid-century, first century uh, established Jewish communities and Jewish Christian churches where there would have been a uh, significant number of Jewish citizens, relatively speaking. So it gives us that view of the scattering. You'll see a word on there too uh, that uh, is, is an interesting word, uh, the word diaspora. That is the Jewish diaspora. That word actually means to scatter. It's a word that's still used today. Many circles, the term diaspora still stands or, or is, implies a Jew who, has, who is living outside of Israel. They will be considered part of the diaspora. So these were diaspora congregations. Uh, congregations that had scattered. And they needed biblical guidance. They needed encouragement. They needed tough love. All from their pastor to remain faithful and to grow in their faith. See, they were running not only for their physical lives, but they were fighting for their spiritual lives. Pagan religions, foreign philosophies, 
ungodly cultural influences. And so to those who had been dispersed, those referred to by James as the beloved brothers and sisters, the Jewish Christians, James writes what is truly a unique book of the Bible. In fact, it's a one of a kind, really. We, we said it was one of the earliest, but even beyond that, the literary style, the genre that James puts together for this book is different than anything else we see in Scripture. And it's sort of a, a multi-part genre, the way he wrote it. And I like to think of this sort of keeps it straight for me, and there's many other multiple facets you can look into, but it's, it's part letter. Hi, my name is James. Jesus is Lord. Now let's get busy. It's part sermon, exhortation. This is what you do and you don't do in order to live out your true faith. And it's actually an equal part wisdom literature, meaning that there are several concise, seemingly sometimes uh, unstructured thoughts that move at rapid pace. Uh, it's, it's been called often the Proverbs of the New Testament, the book of James. We're going to see several times that he actually uses directly and is influenced by many of Solomon's words. So it's a real interesting dynamic uh, in, this, in this book. And I really think that uh, this unique style that James in his writing, it would have immediately resonated with these homesick believers uh, within that context that we described. And even, I think it resonates with us for some of the same reasons. A, a different but similar context. When I think about it, in, in just a few minutes, the beloved brothers and sisters of River Oaks are going to exit worship and enter into, be dispersed to, scatter out among the world for the week ahead. And while our physical safety is a bit more secure than the diaspora Christians, it will not be that much different with our spiritual safety and the vulnerability of our faith. And from the moment we disperse, many of us, many of you, will feel like you're fighting for your spiritual life. Could we use a regular dose throughout our dispersion this week of biblical guidance, encouragement, tough love? I could. I know I could. I spend a lot of time with you. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But, but I also know the Monday through Saturday. I know the workplace. I know the classroom. I know the various social settings. And with a nod to Dorothy and Toto and aligning ourselves with these early Christians, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. So we, as we engage the book of James in this study throughout, I would encourage us to do that through the lens of a scattered people living in a foreign and often hostile world. That was the original audience that James wrote to, and I believe that's the, the audience that he now writes for. The author and the audience. And that brings us to the final point of our introduction, the aim. What was the objective that James was aiming for with this letter? What was his, his why, the purpose well, let's start with the 30,000-foot view, kind of that looking in a, in a very broad summary kind of view. And when we do that, what we can say over and over and over throughout the entire letter is that uh, the, the, the primary aim of James was to reinforce that true faith is active faith 
And active faith is maturing faith. That is the overriding message of the letter. And each of the opportunities for us to demonstrate true faith that James is going to play out there for us, it always looks, looks to be the fact that if there's genuine faith, it will be active. You cannot help yourself. And when it becomes active faith, it will grow. True faith bears fruit, and fruit bearing bears more consistent fruit. That's the message of James. True faith is. And this is also probably a good point to acknowledge some of the misunderstanding or the misuse of the book of James uh, throughout history, really. David uh, Beatty referenced it a bit last week when we talked about distorting God's grace. Well, James writes about actions and he writes about work. He writes about faith. He even says that faith without works is dead. And so many have seen that as um, undermining the message of free, unmerited saving grace taught through Scripture. They'll look and they'll point to James and they'll say, see, he says you have to work for it. you got to do something to be saved. Couldn't be any further from the truth. They claim that he emphasizes a workspace salvation and even a workspace preservation of grace. But James, well, think about it. Now that we know the author, James had experienced the free gift of grace as much as anybody, any of us, anybody. He hadn't done anything that merited salvation or grace. And he knows this. He realizes this. He tells us, though, that once we are genuinely confessing Jesus as Lord, we are radically changed. We are a new self. And to James, changed means changed. The old self is gone. The new self is now who we're living in in Christ. And we can't help but desire to live out our faith in a way that is active. It's productive. And in all these responses, that's a way to demonstrate productive faith. It's also a misconception that James is preaching perfection. Not at all. Chapter 3, James says that uh, we all stumble in many ways. We're going to fall short. We're going to slip up. But he says if our daily actions aren't just spiritually, uh, directionally trending, if they're not moving forward, at least in some degree, if the, the, the spirit of our heart is not desiring a greater Christ-likeness and obedience, then we at the very least need to reconsider what exactly it was that we professed when we said that Jesus was Lord of our life. That's the message of, of, of James, 30,000 feet. And, and um, just to kind of tie, tie that one up on the, the theological misunderstanding sometime, I do like the way that John Calvin, 16th century uh, reform theologian and pastor, he defended James, and he defended the message of James. And he wrote, he says, It is therefore faith alone which justifies. Faith alone saves. You agree with that? Nothing you have to do. And yet... Faith that justifies is never alone. Now, that's kind of one of those, hmm, might have to write that down and think about it later. But John says, that's what James is saying. He's saying that, yeah, no, 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 no. Faith alone saves you. But saving faith is never alone. There's a sanctification process. There's a changed heart, a changed life, changed behavior. And so we'll touch on that again and again throughout the series uh, but we, we can be certain that that's not what uh, James is saying.
And so as we, we move down, we descend, we, we start to, to try to uh, land this thing. Uh, one of the things we see first is that James covers a lot of ground. He's going to touch on in this handbook, he's going to touch on a lot of practical working out of our faith. A lot of um, scenarios that you may be sitting here right now thinking, hmm, I wonder if he's going to discuss something that I struggle with. I wonder if there's going to be a word in there, an area of life that I could use encouragement. I don't know. I'm going to take a risk and say, yes, I think there is. But just to be sure, I'll just give you a little bit of a survey. No raised hands, no pointing side to side. But I would say that as we look at coming down on James, if you struggle with temptation, anger, greed, controlling your tongue, that does mean the way you speak on social media, James has a word for you. If you struggle with favoritism in whatever manner that looks like, racism, sexism, classism, James got a word for you. If you struggle with selfishness, jealousy, the lack of compassion for the poor, divisiveness, impatience, um, arrogance, complaining, handling finances. James has a word for you. So I know with me, he's got several words. He's got a word for, for all of us. And while they're sometimes going to be difficult to hear, these words are also uplifting. They're meant to free us. They're meant to allow us to enjoy the blessing of walking in obedience. And particularly as we think about it as a congregation, moving forward and growing together. Knowing that to James and to each of us, the view is always worth the climb. The view is always the, the eternal hope, the eternal view of glory is worth the climb of obedience and demonstrating true faith in this world. James knew that being brutally honest with ourselves is not always fun, but he knew that by not addressing ungodly actions and attitudes, that was the equivalent of at best straying from our faith, but likely denying our faith and distorting God's love in us and for us. And so we finally land and we look at one example of this. We're going to see all these as we go through the weeks. But as we start our first step of the climb, we look at the first word James has for us. It hits right where his original audience needed it most. And I'm thinking it hits right where many of us need it most today as well. Demonstrating true faith as we face trials. Demonstrating true faith in the face of trials. We read... Verses 2 through 4, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Loss of homes, on the run, threats of violence. If ever a people knew what it was like to face a trial, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations knew a trial. And so James opens with this significant opportunity for them to best put their faith into action. And so let's consider exactly what he's saying briefly here. Consider it pure joy. One of the things we have to sort of see in this is that that word for consider is a much different implication than um, what we give it today. It almost sounds like um, 
it's kind of optional. It sounds a little softer. The best rendering here would have been something that said, choose joy. Be intentional, be purposeful, but choose joy. It's much more direct than our idea of considering today. We feel like we can consider it. Mm, thanks for your consideration. James says, no, there's no consideration. Choose it. He says that we are to be intentional about setting aside our natural inclinations, our human nature of rage and fear and discouragement and choose joy. What does he not say? He does not say, like your situation. He does not say, be happy about your situation. He does not say, you can't be sad or hurt. We shouldn't prayerfully seek victory over our trial. But he tells us that as difficult as it might be, we are to hold tight to the joy and rely on God in the trials as we do in the triumphs. There's pain in the suffering. Blessed be his name. We can't let the trials take our contentment from a life in Christ. Even in the most painful and heartbreaking situations, what James says is not a matter of if, but when. And not a matter of just once, but many times. Different shapes and sizes. Some are big, some are small. And maybe this morning you're facing no trials. That's great. They're coming. I'm not a fatalist. I just know that in a fallen world and what scripture tells us, they're coming. Maybe you're facing a minor trial, a sleepless night, a little heartburn, it'll pass. You can get through it. Maybe, like a lot of people, you're facing a really major trial this morning. Something you don't know if will ever pass. Illness, employment, crisis in relationships, finances. Whatever that might be, I would never try to convince you that I or anyone else know exactly what you're going through or that you shouldn't uh, be hurt by it or feel pain in that. That's not the point. That's not what James had to say. But I can assure you from personal experience and from the testimony and the observations of so many others that when a follower of Christ chooses joy in the trials, even alongside the tears and the pain and the uncertainty, they do experience what James tells us we can expect. And that's the persevering. The ability, by definition, the ability in greater capacity to hold up to the next face, time we face difficulty. Endurance. James tells us that bearing trials, because we always experience them in many forms, is an endurance-building exercise. An exercise that God can use in this world for His glory. It's sort of like, in a way, it's sort of like what we say in Run for God. Uh, we don't like to run hills. And we say there's really only one way to get better at running hills. Run hills. Right? And while trials we don't actively search for, we don't want them to come, we, we pray to the Lord to protect us from the most severe ones, if it's his will, and they're not like a hill workout, we do know they're coming, and we're not surprised by them. And I do think that James in this is starting to attach perseverance and endurance to a changed perspective. This is the perspective in a new life in Christ. 
This is the perspective that very naturally for some of us, we begin with, self-included, why me? Why me? And a changed perspective begins with, okay, what are you going to show me this time, Lord? What are you going to do through me this time? And in this, endurance enables greater endurance, and that ultimately leads to, we kind of get back to the main message of the, of the letter, so that we may be mature. That's the so what of demonstrating true faith in the face of trials. True faith is active faith. Active means choosing and persevering. And active faith means maturing faith. Trials will never cease. By definition, they're never easy. However, each one of them can provide an opportunity to grow spiritually. And that may not sound uh, very helpful to you this morning if you're in the middle of it. And um, this may not be the time for you to try to just really take that in. But I would encourage you in that, that you would grow in that, that you would experience the joy if it's been stolen from you. True faith, the aim of this letter, growing in our faith by learning to respond to life in more mature, Christ-like ways. That's really the aim of this teaching series, that we would do so individually and that collectively as a congregation, we might better respond not only to trials, but to all of these situations James gives us in true faith. So, just a conclusion to, to this introduction to this wonderful, wonderful book. Five chapters we're going to work through over the next two months. And a couple of questions to reflect on as you go out this week. First, in regards to the author, which James am I? A skeptic or a servant? Have I encountered the living Christ and made him Lord of my life? If I have not, please know it is our highest privilege to help introduce you to him, to answer your questions, remain curious. Am I a follower of Jesus already? Am I the change, James? How active is my faith? Does it bear fruit for the kingdom? Which James am I? Second, in thinking about the audience, as we leave here today, have we considered where God might place us, scatter us, disperse us in the week ahead? And are we praying for the preparation to demonstrate true faith with a desire to respond to all the circumstances in Christ-like ways? Do we have strong accountability for that? Maybe it's time in James this week. And finally, thinking about our aim, is maturity the objective of my daily walk? When my feet hit the ground, first thing in the morning, am I praying to grow in maturity of my faith today? Do my actions demonstrate a changed perspective? And can I choose joy? Am I choosing joy? Is it my instinct to trust and seek what the Lord would have me do and become? And really, that's the essence of true faith. You say, well, how do we do all this? Again, while not perfect, we still grow. We learn, we make mistakes, but true faith is really uh, an experience of totally relying on trusting in God. That's true faith, and we become more and more mature in that. I'm eager to take this journey with you. I'm excited about this. I think it's going to be a wonderful opportunity to apply this handbook of practical faith um, 
and uh, to do so through these lenses of our author, our audience, and the aim. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you humbly this morning, and we've searched your word, Lord, for instruction and for encouragement, for correction. And Lord, we pray that um, this morning and uh, over this next several weeks that um, we might uh, find in your Apostle James, Lord, great teaching, and uh, we might be able to demonstrate your love and the gratitude for that love more consistently, Lord. We do pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know you personally as Lord and Savior, that you might introduce yourself to them, that they may know you personally. And Lord, lastly, we pray that for the many of us going through some significant, difficult, heartbreaking trials, that you would just show up, that your presence would reclaim joy in those lives, that you would remind us of the prize the eternal hope, Lord, of your glory, and we might find joy even among the tears. And Lord, we ask all of this in your name.